Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me as always, or actually not always, but as frequently as possible, is Ellie Mistal, also of Above the Law. How are you? I have a hole in my shoe. Well, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound good. I wear the same pair of shoes until they basically fall off, and then I go to the store and just buy the same pair over again. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I do something similar. I like to keep two pairs around at any given time so that I don't have to worry, but, you know, yeah. I only keep one, and now I have to worry. Oh, I don't know how much, how long this is. There's a DSW happen, like down the street. Uh, that's not where I get this pair of shoes. Oh, it's a good place. <laughs> I'm not. I'm mean, not that they've endorsed us or anything, but I mean, they seem like a reasonably priced place to get shoes. If uh, they want to, to endorse us, please let us know. Uh, DSW. That's a good point. I'm gonna try to hold out till Christmas. Okay. So you have a hole in your shoe, but that. I'm hoping is not what's actually got you upset today. No, what's got me upset is a whole different holiday. Uh, by the time you guys are listening to this, we're going to be really close to my least favorite holiday on the calendar, and that is the abominable Halloween. Halloween is a holiday, now that I have children, I realize, is a holiday where I'm supposed to send my children out into the street to beg for candy, which is annoying. Before I had children, it was a holiday where women were supposed to dress up really, really sluttily so I could not have sex with them because I was married. And before it was that holiday, it was the holiday where I was a child who was sent out into the street to beg for candy and got beat up by the neighborhood kids because, you know, my life is one of pain and misery. Granted, grant, all right, just in fairness, granted, the one time I did get jumped, I was nine years old and dressed up like Teddy Kennedy for Halloween. And, you know, yeah, in retrospect, I can see what the problem was there. But still, we're talking about a holiday where kids regularly get jumped for showing, you know, political activism at an early age. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to unpack there, and I really feel as though I don't have the psychological credentials to do it. <laughs> no, it's it's a perfectly fine little holiday. There are bigger problems with it that I have that I can get over, but that I think that there is a much more prevalent and inappropriate cultural stereotyping and uh, appropriation issue. And it's interesting. We'll be talking a little bit. Appropriation of Wiccans? What? No. Um, No, there's lots of, for instance, when we went to the ILTA conference this year, you wrote a good article about uh, the prevalence that white people have for dressing up as stereotypes of various (laughs) ethnicities. And I see a lot of that on Halloween too, which is problematic. But as a general matter, if you dress up as a ghost and get yourself some candy, I, I don't really mind. Well, what do you think about the fact that Halloween is also the holiday that we choose to stigmatize our brothers and sisters who have committed, you know, horrible sex crimes? Hmm. Halloween is a terrible day for people who have served their time for their for their sex crime. It's a horrible day because they have to have signs saying no candy here and it's all like a big thing. Yeah, okay. I'm going to go ahead and say that that's a bigger bigger issue than Halloween, but <laughs> You can use this as a point around which to rally. Uh, no, uh, go out, get candy, enjoy life. That's probably something that other people can do if they aren't busy dressing up as U.S. senators for Halloween, which that also is a whole other can of therapist worms. 
Don't uh, come to my house. Yeah, I'm literally so, going as Oscar the Grouch this year. Oh, that's that's good. That's good. I like that. That's a good uh, a good look. So with that, uh, why don't we talk about the big legal issues going on today, which would be the beginning of the Supreme Court's next term. Oh, I thought you were going to say some various Trump scandal is the big. But, you know. Yeah, I guess that's true. There are a lot of those. But this is more going to be about the Supreme Court. I think that's, that's cool. Yeah. So uh, we actually have a guest returning from last year's Supreme Court preview. He's he's kind of carved out a space as our resident Supreme Court expert. We have Tejinder Singh, who's a regular contributor at SCOTUS blog, partner at Goldstein Russell, Supreme Court litigator. Welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Tejinder, do you think you're going to be able to stay awake during the term this year? Oh, yeah. You know, I don't know. So my toughest thing is like, unlike you, I love Halloween, but I've got to argue a case the next day. And so I'm uh, I'm so bummed. I think I'm going to miss it this year. But yeah, I think I'll be able to stay up for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have the advantage of actually doing things during the term. For those of us who are just watching, it's a, it's a, a little bit more of a snoozer, which I think brings us to the first question, which is a little outside of the specific docket. But do you think that this docket was influenced in any way by the political realities that we've got eight Supreme Court justices and very little sign that that's going to change in the near future. Yeah, 1,000%. I mean, I think that there is very good reason to believe that the justices are are passing on uh, issues that they think will be extremely contentious. And, and the best example of this is there's actually a case on the docket called the Trinity Lutheran. So this is a religious freedom type case about whether states can deny funding to churches for programs that are kind of similar to, to what secular folks are doing and getting money for. And it was supposed to be on the calendar for last term. The court kicked it over to this term after Justice Scalia died. And uh, normally you would have seen it scheduled for argument in October or November, but it hasn't showed up yet. And so everyone thinks that basically what's happening is the court is just not going to do anything with it until such time as they have a ninth justice who can help them decide it. Or help them decide. That's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) I think the issue, right, is that the eight of them already are pretty much already made up their minds before even hearing argument. My guess is that something like that's correct, that when they voted to grant cert, you know, some opinions about the merits probably were expressed during that conference. And so they were really worried that the case will go down four to four. And I think the court is really reticent to reach those results. But, you know, on the flip side of that, there was an interesting order just issued today, October 3rd, where the um, the court declined to rehear the United States versus Texas immigration case, the case on which it deadlocked four to four. Uh, so they're not holding back all the issues, just some of them. And it, it's very hard, actually, to figure out what's going on. Can I ask this question? Because it's a point that I've been making kind of out on the stump, that in a way, from a certain kind of conservative position of legal scholarship, one of the things that conservatives have been asking for for generations is for the court to do less. And in many ways, they're kind of getting what they want this term by having a hobbled court um, that kind of can't function in perhaps the quote unquote activist ways that it has over the past 10, 20 years. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of disagree with the premise. You know, I think that conservatives tend to decry judicial activism when it's 
sort of, you know, conservative policy positions or on the chopping block at the court or being deemed unconstitutional. On the flip side, you know, you don't really see a lot of conservative crying about judicial activism when it's, you know, affirmative action programs are being struck down. So, you know, I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, to take your question, like on its own terms, you know, I think that certainly the court is doing less. And I think that the upshot of that actually is that the lower courts are so much more important now. You know, the Ninth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit in certain areas are just so happy because the majorities to reverse them kind of no longer exist. And so those rulings obviously will stand if they're not successfully challenged in the Supreme Court. And I think that that is, you know, a function of the court being able to do less. So one case that stood out to us when we were first going through the term that we thought was kind of interesting was this Peña Rodriguez versus Colorado case, Mm -hmm. which is this case about the sanctity of juries. Uh, and what kind of struck or us... Or it's a case about racism. Yeah, or a case about racism, depending on how, how one decides to parse the line. You have a jury where, allegedly, apparently, one of the jurors threw out a bunch of racist comments and influenced the way, theoretically, that the jury made its decision. We also have a history in this country of not probing into what goes on inside the jury room for a variety of policy reasons to protect the finality of cases and so on and so forth. But that's the matter now that we're going to get some decision on. And I thought that was an interesting case because it does seem very contentious, very interesting, but it's also something where the lines may not be drawn necessarily along the conservative liberal lines like usual. Yeah, I think that's correct. It it is an interesting case. You know, so in this case, you've got a juror who I think said something to the effect of, you know, I think he he committed this rape because he's a Mexican, and Mexicans always get what they want. It's kind of like the taco trucks on every corner comment that made the rounds, mm-hmm, you know. Right. And so, um, yeah, so you have that sort of sentiment expressed in the jury room, and it's true. You know, normally we don't really allow probing into what happened in the jury to impeach a verdict. But, you know, this is kind of a special kind of impeachment. It's about whether, you know, there have been sort of Sixth Amendment violations of the right to an impartial jury in the first instance. So it may present kind of a special case. And, uh, yeah, I don't know that we'll necessarily divide along the sort of classic, you know, conservative liberal lines. I think you could see really sort of forceful arguments on both sides of this case from either perspective, for sure. I think Ginsburg in the past has been very reluctant to to pierce the veil of jury deliberations. I wouldn't imagine she would uh, go back on that. By the same token, like you say, I, I think that some of the, you know, a Kennedy could look at this in a very different way. So I, I don't, I, like you, I truly don't know how it's going to come out. Yeah. And, you know, there have been like a bunch of amicus briefs filed in that case, kind of telling you, you know, where folks come out. I do think that, you know, on balance, you know, the the sort of liberal side of the world and especially folks who are principally interested in, you know, racial justice have really come in very strongly on the side of the defendant. You know, and on the other hand, you've got a bunch of states and district attorneys in the United States have filed on Colorado's. And I think that that, you know, that tells you a little something about, you know, how folks will see this. But I agree with you, you know, there there's definitely room for liberal justices to say, oh, you know, the sanctity of the jury may trump the fact that some American jurors are likely to be racist. Because honestly, that's probably not, even though, you know, comments like that are, are obviously awful. You know, I don't think it shocks anybody there are racists in America and that some of them end up on juries, you know. And so if that winds up being the takeaway, you know, it would be, I think, pretty problematic for how criminal justice in this country functions. 
I think that's a great point. And look, to me, the most interesting question about this case is one that isn't presented to the court. The juror in question who said these racist comments identifies as a former law enforcement officer. And to me, there's a whole different issue about having you know, law enforcement, former law enforcement in the jury room, because it seems to me like those people are in a particular position to influence the jury one way or another. You know, I think that's kind of bad defense attorney work to have <laughs> to have that guy still on the jury in the first place. But that is not in front of the court. Yeah, I heard a funny story about this once where the U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland once found his way onto a criminal jury because the pro se defendant just like never asked the question, you know, during voir dire, like, are you a federal prosecutor? And so there he was doing jury duty going, what the hell is going on? <laughs> you mentioned in your previous answer, um, amicus briefs, and that's a good segue to what I think is one of the more kind of interesting talk around the Thanksgiving table cases this term, and that is Apple v. Samsung, which has just a murderer's row of amicus briefs filed, right? For listeners who aren't familiar with the case, this is a case about design patents. It's about whether or not Apple can patent the design, the sleekness, the rounded corners of the iPhone and whether or not Samsung can copy that. Um, a court said that Samsung copied everything and that they owed Apple, you know, their firstborn. Samsung saying like, no, we only owe Apple, you know, like the redheaded stepchild. The violations that we had for copying the look of the iPhone shouldn't be upheld. On Samsung's side are Facebook and Google and, you know, what we think of as our tech giants who obviously have a vested interest in, I guess, being able to steal and copy from each other. On the opposing side, on Apple's side, it's like Christian Dior and and uh, what's his face? Uh, we don't have the fashion editors in here, but like other fashion people um, who obviously clearly feel that the fashion of the phone um, is kind of protectable and very valuable. You have a very different Thanksgiving conversation than most people. <laughs> Fair. What do you think about that case, Shinder? Yeah, so I'll, I will disclose that my firm is among the counsel to Samsung in that case. So we have some vested interest in how it comes out. Um, yeah, you know, it's an interesting patent issue. As, as people who have been following this issue, or, or maybe even those who haven't that closely may know, you know, this is sprawling patent litigation that's been going on for ages between, you know, Samsung and Apple about smartphones. And the specific issue is whether, in this case, is whether, you know, when you have a design patent, the damages should be you know, limited to the damages that are attributable to the specific component and the design patent, or whether you get damages relating to like the entire phone, you know, for example. And, uh, you know, it's an issue on which you could really imagine a lot of disagreement within the industry, right? Because it just depends on if what you're mostly doing is designing little components that go into bigger things or whether you're making the bigger things, right? And if you make the bigger things, you're going to be really worried that if you're ever hit with an infringement judgment, you're going to have really large verdicts based on your entire product. And where if you're doing a lot of designing of smaller components, you know, you're going to be really interested in potentially getting those verdicts. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, that accounts for a lot of where the amici line up. But there's, you know, there's so much money at stake in some of these industry areas that it's not surprising that, you know, everyone has come out that would work to file briefs on this. Well, I what guess, do you talk about over Thanksgiving? Well, what I'll talk about over Thanksgiving, well, probably won't, but I'll continue this charade that I discuss these things at Thanksgiving. Um, let's transition. Actually, this may come up at Thanksgiving, I guess, but not for the same reasons. 
keeping in the intellectual property world, we just got another case added, which is the the whole question of whether or not you can trademark offensive stuff. The case that's actually being taken is not exactly the Washington Redskins, but I think that's the elephant in the room that the, and this is how it might come up on Thanksgiving because I'll watch football, uh, I, see I'm, how I I'm did it. You. Yeah, Totally um, with you. Yeah, so the whether you can trademark words like Redskins, which has been found by the Patent Trademark Office to be offensive and therefore not trademarkable. But on the other hand, you have, in this case, uh, Asian American band that named themselves an Asian American slur in kind of an act of reappropriation. Now, do they get protection, even though the word itself may be derogatory, but is there, it's a real question of like the kind of more modern social science discussion of the power of reclaiming things and reappropriation. Can you be ironical in, yeah. your, in your trademarks? Irony. So do you have any, um, I don't know if your firm has any involvement in that particularly, but uh, but that's kind of the new one that I find really interesting. And another question where the lines may not be conservative liberal like you would expect. Yeah, it is an interesting question. So the trademark statute says, you know, you cannot trademark something that consists of matter that may disparage persons, living or dead institutions, beliefs or national symbol or something like that. And the question is whether that restriction on trademark rights violates the First Amendment. And I think it's an interesting question, right? Because, as you know, there's a lot of context in which people you know, want to trademark potentially disparaging terms. You know, I do think that there's sort of an interesting policy debate here, which is that like saying you can't trademark something is not the same as saying, you know, you can't sell it, for example, right? And right, it's, right. it's not the same as saying you can't call your band that, right? So it's not exactly censorship. So the, the First Amendment questions are kind of one step removed from what we normally think about when the government restricts speech. And so there's this interesting question, you know, it might, it might relate a little bit to the government speech cases, right? So there was this case last term about uh, could you get a, a license plate with a Confederate flag on it if Texas didn't want to issue that to you? And the court said no, because it's government speech. Now, trademarks are not government speech. They're private speech, but they're private speech that gets this sort of special level of additional government protection. And so there may be questions about sort of whether the government has to extend that benefit to all kinds of speech and how much sort of play there is in the joints there. Uh, I do think it's super interesting. And I think it's going to be, and I think, you know, as you know, the, the elephant in the room case is the one relating to the Washington Redskins. Their petition, they filed one that said, if you grant in this case about the ban, you should also grant our case, even though we haven't even argued it in the Fourth Circuit yet. And the court denied that petition, sent it back down. So obviously, the decision in this case will have huge bearing. The court said, slow your roll, slow your roll. Yeah. Can we talk about takings now? No. Okay. Um but I think we could, yeah, for whatever reason, every time we talk about the Supreme Court, Ellie decides to go off on takings over and over and over again. I'm like, it's really not that interesting. It's a hugely interesting Supreme Court case on takings. Muir v. Wisconsin, right? Yeah, it it's not it's not hugely interesting. It's it's a takings case. Like, come on, man. It's the foundation of our zoning regulations in this country. Sure. Okay. Right. See, I was gonna go more about like gerrymandering and voting rights but you know if you want to talk about whether or not somebody can have a one acre plot by all means no let's talk about voting that's so interesting right now (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if you know there's an election like it's a thing yeah no people want to vote you should go vote go ahead talk yeah so kind of in contrast to what we were talking about about how the a lot of apolitical or at least not 
traditionally political lines cases keep coming up in this term. But there are two hyper-political cases that are here, probably because of the saliency with an election coming up. But we have two cases, different issues, but related issues, a Virginia case and a North Carolina case about how districts get how gerrymandering works, yeah. right? And I think one of the more interesting things here is that, you know, you can understand kind of the social policy of drawing a district so that there are enough kind of African-Americans or whatever minority you want to think about, drawing them together so that they get to pick their own representative. Okay. But when you do that, what happens is that um, all the African-Americans get taken out of <laughs> other districts and it kind of it, it makes the districts devoid of African Americans sometimes particularly odd and particularly um, you get kind of extremophile yep. districts right is there still kind of in the modern era a reason why you would kind of go out of your way to draw to draw a district that kind of excludes one street full of black people to throw those black people into the majority black district but also deny them their rights of kind of voting with their neighbors across the street yeah, I do think those are some of the, the interesting issues in these redistricting cases. I also think one of the really interesting background rules in redistricting is that, you know, racial gerrymandering is not allowed, right? But partisan gerrymandering is like just fine, you know, and um, there's a there's obviously they're addressed to different considerations. But, you know, I think as we've seen Throughout the course of the last several election cycles, you know, there's a good argument to be made that partisan gerrymandering is no less sort of obnoxious to the exercise of voting rights. You know, the sort of underlying principles that have that sort of animated the Voting Rights Act in the first place. And so it's really interesting how these cases get litigated because so much of the fight often centers on, you know, what the motives were and what the, you know, sort of the intentions behind the district drawing were and less so behind the effects of how the districts were drawn. And then you get these really sort of convoluted, you know, legal discussions about, well, how do you how do you prove that? What should the standards be? And so on. And that's a lot of what you have in the, the cases that are before the court this term. Where is the court on this, do you think? Because as you point out, like there, we are kind of evolving our standards on what how this should be done and how this should be acceptable, if at all. And I don't feel like there's a clear understanding from either side of the kind of ideological divide about kind of how they actually want things to go. It feels so often that if the gerrymandering worked out for the kind of liberal idea, then the liberals are going to go for it. And if the gerrymandering kind of worked out for the Republican idea uh, candidates, the Republicans are going to go for it. And I don't see a lot of ideological kind of consistency from either side on this. Am I missing something? Do you think there's more of a plan here from the justices or are they just really doing it kind of based on uh, case by case? I think a lot of it is kind of case by case. I think what you see is that, you know, the justices who are on the more conservative side of the court, I think are often unfairly kind of demeaned as racist, you know, but those justices, I think, just have sort of a narrower conception of what constitutes racism than I think sort of like a lot of kind of, you know, modern liberals and, and many social scientists, right? They have the idea that if something is, a, is racist, that's because it's like meant to be racist, you know? But when they see that, I think you see them react very strongly, 
right? I think the the idea of intentional racial discrimination still, you know, strikes a very powerful chord with all the justices on the court, you know, including the ones who are often, I think, you know, criticized for being a little blinkered about this. And so that's why I think the law has developed the way it has. So a lot of these cases, I think, do tend to turn on their particular facts, like how strong, just how strong was the evidence of, you know, some improper racial motive. And I think you're actually seeing a lot of that reflected around the court's docket generally, right? So you've got these voting rights cases, Peña Rodriguez that we talked about. There's a death penalty case called Buck, which is up and that has this huge, you know, racial component to it. And I think that, you know, all of those really kind of strike nerves with all the justices. Yeah. Buck was the one that first struck me when I started reading it to prep up for the term. I was just like, wait, wait, his own expert said what? Yeah. I mean, it's an utterly bizarre fact pattern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, like now that Roberts has um, declared racism over in the South, I think it is interesting to see what he... <laughs> oh, Shelby what, County, shout out. What level of racism he still believes exists in this country. Tinder, I want to get you out of here on the kind of... Now that we've gone and gone to voting and gotten to a little bit more politics, I want to get you here, out of here on this. Hillary wins the presidency. The Republicans control the Senate. Who's the next Supreme Court justice? Merrick Garland. Woohoo, that's who I think too. Do you think you you still think they'll do it lame duck? Yeah. Here's the question, right? Does the Senate confirm lame duck Obama's nominee, or do they, after reclaiming the Senate, do they wait for Hillary's nominee? Because you know, their whole argument so far, their whole argument has been they want to wait for the new president. Yeah, that let's not pretend they believe that, right? It's uh <laughs> I think what happens is under no circumstance are they going to get a better deal than Merrick Garland, right? So even if they're keeping the Senate so they could take Hillary's nominee, their best case scenario is like much younger version of Merrick Garland, right? You know, that's, or at least there's a risk that that's what they get. Someone kind of centrist, but still, but you know, like a 40 year old or something. Whereas if they, you know, confirm now, they can have a 63-year-old centrist justice in a year where they lost the presidential election, and they effectively pay no political price for being obstinate beforehand, right? I think it is the best-case scenario for them if Hillary wins the White House, and so I think they'll do it. And as for timing, they can manage their risk by confirming him in the lame duck rather than waiting and seeing if she nominates someone else. And one point that I uh, have been bringing up, because I went to an event where Neil Katyal was talking, and he he made the point that I think resonated with me, that even if Hillary were to win, she'd probably re-put up Merrick Garland anyway, because if she were to win, she would have, and a Republican Senate, she would be facing a million and one confirmation fights for everything under the sun. Why pick a fight on this one, where there's some sense that they might go for this in a relatively rubber stamp way once they get the chance. Yeah, I think that may be true. You know, I, I also think that, you know, if if there was any semblance of, you know, comedy and reason, this confirmation would have happened ages ago. And so, you know, it's <laughs> I and, and also I think that for Hillary, you know, Hillary's walking in an interesting line because you haven't seen her you know, openly embrace or criticize Garland, which has always made me think that he wouldn't be her first pick, right? Because if she really started blasting him and saying she'd nominate someone else, I think they would be much more likely to confirm him right away. And I'm, I'm not actually sure that's what she wants to happen. Because, you know, even though she'll have other confirmation fights, I think 
like Supreme Court justices are a major legacy line item for presidents. And so I think this one may be, you know, she may be this one is more important. But yeah, you know, I mean, there are lots of reasons why she might go with him. You guys are both more hopeful than I am. I just feel like, look, now that the Republicans in the Senate have set down this gauntlet, and as you said quite correctly, if they pay no political price for it, what's to make them confirm anybody ever again? We've just seen there's no constitutional requirement that the Senate actually has to do their job. Why would they ever confirm another person? I mean, I, like they've taken the top off of this thing. Uh, I, I think if they were to say we're not ever going to confirm somebody, that would be a different kettle of fish entirely than if they were to say, oh, OK, you know, <laughs> we give up. I just I just think that, you know, I like to see the voters make them prove that. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, everything's terrible. And there's a hole in my shoe. Wow. And <laughs> Halloween's coming up. So you've got everything. Everything's just bad for you. I'm just trying to make it to November 9th, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much to Jennifer for joining us again. And good luck. Uh, I guess you're arguing something on November 1st, it sounds like. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good, good luck. luck with that. Yep. I've got uh, State Farm versus Rigsby. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Nice, nice. Um, okay, so thanks everybody also for listening today. If you have not already given us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast farm you utilize, do that because it helps us move up in their algorithms. You can read our work at Above the Law, which is where we are every day. You can also download the Legal Talk Network app if you so desire, where you could listen to this and all the other Legal Talk Network shows all in one convenient place. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at L-E-N-Y-C, E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. And well, with that, now. now you have every possible way, I think, of getting a hold of us. Well, I mean, I didn't give your chat roulette handle, but <laughs> anyway, that was a blast from the past. Kids, there used to be an internet thing called chat roulette. Anyway, so with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in the future on another episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. Peace out, guys. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.